0: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to
1: reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with.
0: This is KCBS In-Depth. The cases are surging, the hospital beds are filling up. It's a sure sign that the third wave of COVID is gathering force. I'm Keith Menconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program, we're going to take a closer look at the full-scale effort now underway to get prepared. Starting with the latest health orders that have come down this past week. Then in the second half, we're going to check in with a major hospital system to hear what they're doing to prepare as the ICU beds fill up. First up, well, it's starting to feel an awful lot like March all over again as we once more enter a time of uncertainty and ever-strengthening health orders. To help us get our bearings in all this, we are going to welcome back onto the program now Dr. Art Reingold, a professor with UC Berkeley's School of Public Health, where he heads up the Division of Epidemiology. Dr. Art Reingold, welcome back to KCBS In-Depth
2: thanks it's good to be with you
0: so a lot has happened this past week let's review it real quick for uh, anybody who's having trouble keeping up Uh, first of all governor newsom on thursday introduced a new system to impose stay-at-home orders when a given region falls uh, below 15 percent icu bed capacity so uh, basically once that is triggered those orders mean the closure of uh, most restaurant dining as well as bars uh, personal care services and hair salons then on friday just a day later six bay area health officers held a press conference to say actually uh, we are not going to wait until our counties reach that 15 percent threshold Uh, we're gonna call that stay-at-home order early Uh, and so that is going to be starting in some counties uh, this weekend in fact Uh, and that is where we are right now Uh, dr reingold help us understand here you know the bay area is in a somewhat safer place relative to the rest of the state why was this maybe thought to be a necessary step
2: so, so I think this represents a continuation of a very proactive approach by our Bay Area counties who, whose health officers have been working in concert now since really the beginning of the pandemic, um, or at least its arrival in California. And I think that's important because of course, all of us can readily move from one county to another and having very inconsistent policies from one county to a neighboring county can certainly create problems and, and confusion. So they're, they're obviously acting in concert and, and and they have consistently tried to be out in front uh, with regard to their response, and I think this is just another example of that, uh, where where fundamentally we can we can be quite certain as epidemiologists uh, that that more uh, COVID cases and hospitalizations and ICU admissions are in the offing uh, in in the coming weeks for a variety of reasons, and so. Um, I think, if you will, making that decision quickly uh, is an attempt to, to prevent our hospitals from being totally inundated and, and, and exceeding their capacity, particularly given that many of our Bay Area outstanding hospitals um, also take transfers of patients from rural counties or counties that don't have hospitals. So it's really a resource we, we're trying to guard not just for our counties but but for the entire catchment area
0: mm and curious for your thoughts on how effective this might be, because the projections that we're seeing is that many counties are thought to run out of ICU capacity in the next several weeks. The Bay Area lagging not too far behind, perhaps early January. So we're not looking at a huge time horizon here, given the measures that are being put into place. You know, basically talking about various business closures, how, how big of a dent uh, could that make? Uh, how, how, how much better of a path could that put us on?
2: Well, I think that's a great question. And the answer any reasonable epidemiologist would give you is that remains to be seen. Um, uh, but but uh, so, so you can say this is an important, perhaps valiant effort. Uh, how successful will it be? Uh, I honestly don't know. But you know, I think if, if, you're, if you think about infections that spread from one person to another, uh, and, and the fact that the numbers of infections can grow exponentially if unchecked, um, it means that, that um, and, and we can be pretty certain that we're going to be in very dire circumstances if we do nothing. And so despite the fact that doing something, uh, being more aggressive, uh, causes economic harm and inconvenience and a lot of problems for people, I, I think it's the wise thing to do in hopes that it'll be effective.
0: And certainly given the math of how these viruses spread, uh, even just a couple of weeks difference uh, could make a lot of difference. I mean, we look at the example of New York and it's thought that if New York had clamped down with stricter measures, even just, you know, two, three weeks earlier, many thousands of lives could have been saved.
2: Well, you know, um, I I think, uh, you know, uh, it's always easy to be smart in hindsight, um, but, but you're absolutely correct. Um, And, you know, what we know uh, is is that if you act earlier, when there are fewer infections, uh, you can have a much more dramatic impact, positive impact, um, than you can if you're trying to do the same thing uh, months later, once the virus is widespread and, and large, the large numbers of infected people. And that's, in one way, in sense, pretty simple arithmetic. Um, so, so, you know, we are trying to get a handle on this um, for at least the next few months, uh, because we are hopeful uh, that, that the coming availability of what we hope will be safe and effective vaccines uh, over the next three to six months are gonna greatly ameliorate the situation uh, but but in the meantime, as uh, uh, Dr. Redfield of the CDC and others have said, we could be in for a pretty rough patch the next couple months.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, what we're all worrying about. Uh, talking about that rough patch with Dr. Art Reingold, once again, uh, with UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. So. Uh, you know, we opened the segment talking about the feeling that we're having that we've sort of been here before, but in a lot of ways, this is a different moment. We have learned a lot since March, and uh, you saw that reflected in the orders that uh, Governor Newsom was giving earlier this week. In particular, he was talking about the fact that outdoor activities, when socially distanced and spread out properly, um, are now known to be safe. So uh, we have learned an awful lot since March. Uh, Dr. Reingold. how should that inform the response, uh, both, you know, at, at the the county level, the state level, and as individuals, uh, just given what we know about what's safe and what isn't during this pandemic?
2: Well, well and, I, and I can understand why people are confused, uh, you know, because sometimes the messages are changing with regard to what's safe and, and what isn't. And, and you're right. Uh, a pandemic caused by a novel virus that we've never seen before up until a year ago uh, means we're going to learn a lot uh, over the, you know, the the months in which we're, we're, we're trying strategies we're using now, and just to take one example that you alluded to, um, the evidence is overwhelming that the most dangerous and risky situations are when uh, you've got people in crowded, uh, poorly ventilated indoor spaces and not wearing a mask. And so um, is it relatively safe to take a walk on a trail, uh, even if you're walking with someone else? Uh, if you maintain some distance from that person or wear a mask, that's a perfectly uh, reasonable thing to do and probably quite safe because transmission outdoors um, is is much, much less of a problem. So um, the idea that we can potentially leave beaches and and trails and, and, and parks open for people to get some exercise and some relief emotionally, I, I think is perfectly reasonable. Again, if people show some modicum of, of um, uh, caution. Um, so when I'm out on a trail, uh, you know, if I see someone else coming, I, I step aside and we don't get any closer than six feet. Uh, or, you know, I put on my mask. That's a pretty minor inconvenience. Um, so, so, so I think that's an advancement. Um, compared to what we might have been saying six or eight months ago. Um, so, uh, you know, on the other hand, I think we now have plenty of evidence that having large numbers of people together inside, whether it's to have a party or a wedding or to be at a, a, at a religious service uh, or to be uh, drinking in a bar, um, you know, that, that activities like singing and shouting uh, in these spaces can produce what we call super spreader events. So, um, you know, wh- I would argue that we really need to be quite careful about uh, engaging in those kind of activities. I think they're very high risk. Um, at the same time, we have the whole question of schools and, and you know, what we can do to get our kids uh, in school uh, where they can be learning. And, and I think there are, we've learned a lot that, that we can potentially uh, have uh, kids, at least older kids, or excuse me, younger kids uh, back in school, um, exercising, you know, various types of precautions. So so I think we have learned the last six months, and, and that is informing the decisions that uh, people are making uh, today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, a lot of tricky decisions ahead, to be sure. I mean, I I can imagine a lot of our listeners uh, at this very moment feeling like, you know, we have been going through this for 11 months now, just about, It's a lot of sacrifices have been made. A lot of life experiences have been given up. A lot of people, you know, economic opportunities have been given up. And here we are in the situation that we have been trying to avoid this whole time. Um, uh, Curious for your thoughts on how how it is that we we got here. I mean, is this a sign that our overall efforts have been unsuccessful or or was something like this always a risk, you know, despite the best of our uh, anti-pandemic efforts?
2: So, you, you know, I, I think if you look around the world, um, you'll see that, you know, a number of other countries that, that seemed to be in good shape a few months ago are now having resurgences, a number of countries in Europe, for example. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think what this reflects uh, is the fact that the virus really hasn't gone anywhere. The virus is still in human populations. Um, you know, as, as people have tried, however or slowly to um, allow more freedom, to allow uh, people to get back to work, to you know, to allow more activities. Um, there's been an inevitable, uh, you know, further spread of the virus, particularly when people are not wearing a mask uh, and exercising social distancing. And so, I think we do have people in all of our community, in many communities at least, uh, who who are not convinced that this is a problem or, or don't believe that these modalities of prevention are. Useful or effective, or in some way or uh, you know um, not not good to do. So so I think it's been a mix of trying to give people more uh, opportunity to do things uh, with people not necessarily showing uh, you know enough uh, care uh, when they when they're out and about, um, together with for example the fact that it's gotten colder outside, um, and so. It may be less of an issue in the Bay Area, but in, you know uh, it's still harder to say just do everything outside uh, as the weather has gotten cooler, um, and and people are forced to spend more time inside. And on top of that, you have holidays uh, like Thanksgiving where people clearly want to be with family and friends mm-hmm. and are traveling. So it's it's a it's a potent mix uh, that that is very hard to deal with frankly, in the absence of a safe and effective vaccine.
0: All right. So certainly a lot of hope on the horizon. But as you're alluding to right there, also an awful lot of work, an awful lot of movement that needs to happen. Uh, We have been speaking to one of the guys doing that work. That would be Dr. Art Reingold, once again, a professor with UC Berkeley's School of Public Health, where he heads up the division of epidemiology. Dr. Art Reingold, thanks so much.
2: Good to talk to you.
0: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, as COVID cases surge throughout the country, we're looking at what's being done to prepare here at home. Just heard how Bay Area health officials are responding, changing the focus now, Well, the region's hospitals are also making an all-out effort to get ready, of course, shoring up medical resources, expanding capacity as much as possible. We're going to hear a bit more about how that effort is shaping up for Kaiser Permanente hospitals in particular. For that perspective, I spoke earlier with Dr. Stephen Perotti. He is an infectious disease specialist and an associate executive director with Kaiser Permanente. Here is that conversation. Dr. Stephen Perotti, thanks for being on KCBS In Depth. Very good to be with you. So looking statewide, it seems like the expectations are at this point that ICU beds are uh, in many places going to be filling up towards the end of the month and some places even sooner. Here in the Bay Area, we are perhaps uh, have a few more weeks of projections looking like we're going to fill up here in the Bay Area, maybe in the early weeks of January. Of course, these are all just projections, but that's the numbers that people are putting forward right now. What does the picture look like in terms of hospital capacity and uh, the point at which uh, we are going to fill up. Uh, What does that look like from the perspective of the Kaiser Network?
1: Yeah, thank you for the question. So for Kaiser Permanente, we're able to actually uh, look at, of course, our our daily census, and then we're able to project out um, based on some predictive modeling that we've done. And then we also uh, work in conjunction with uh, the California Department of Public Health and with their models. Um, And what we're seeing is essentially exponential growth in the number of people that are being hospitalized. Um, And that includes our intensive care units. And so we have built in plans um, with our uh, command center structure uh, to be able to flex beds, um, to increase the staffing um, and and prepare for a surge. Uh, But I do have concern um, that we need to take action um, as a, a global community um, to protect the, the hospital system, and actually, more importantly, to protect each other, um, to reduce the, the chances of uh, death, uh, disability, and hospitalization related to COVID.
0: And when you talk about protecting each other, you're talking about social distancing, masking
1: up? Absolutely. Um, you know, when I think about it, we have learned so much in the last nine months, um, and we know that those so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions work washing your hands, wearing a mask, and watching your distance. Um, And we know if we institute those within two to three weeks, we see COVID go down. Um, And that's exactly what we need to be doing right now. Um, No question about it. Um, That's how we're going to make sure that we've got both the hospital capacity, but also capacity within our society to keep things open um, if, if we do the right thing.
0: Now, what does that look like when hospitals do hit capacity? Uh, We've been hearing a lot about the many ways in which hospitals have gotten better at treating COVID-19, learning sort of what works, what doesn't work. But a lot of that experience is less useful when you have fewer and fewer doctors per patient and everybody in the medical uh, community is just stretched to the limit. So what does it look like when we get
1: to that point? You raise such an important uh, point here. So for the last four or five months, we've had new therapeutic uh, agents that we're able to use medications. Um, and in fact, uh, within the Kaiser Permanente system, we've actually seen reductions in the length of time a person needs to be hospitalized either in a regular medical unit or in an intensive care unit because of those new things that we um, have been able to institute. Now what happens is if the hospital gets clogged up because essentially you just have too many patients, um, then the systems are unable to be efficient. Um, and so just by virtue of, um, you know, sort of like Legos, you can't move the Legos anymore. Um, then all of a sudden you can't move people efficiently through the hospital system. And so then the length of stay goes up. Um, and of course the risk for complications goes up. Um, we have plans in place for a surge um, so that we can bring in physicians, we can bring in nurses, we can bring in the other staff um, to try to bolster the system. But um, to your point, there is a limit. Um, and, uh, and then you have to change the, the model of care. And then we've seen that done in other states. Um, and the opportunity we have right now in California, just like we did in March and April, California was on the leading edge. For preventing what happened in other states. And that's the kind of action we need to take right now. Speaking once
0: again to Dr. Stephen Perotti, infectious disease specialist and an associate executive director with Kaiser Permanente. So talking about the steps that can be taken between now and when we potentially uh, do hit that limit, my understanding is that uh, Kaiser recently set up a regional command center to coordinate some of its resources. What do the, the weeks ahead look like as uh, a lot of the folks that uh, a lot of your colleagues are trying to get a handle on all this?
1: Yes, so um, the the command center structure allows us to take action as an entire system um, and do it quickly Um, so we're able to get together literally I was on. You know, a a call uh, just before talking to you um, about how we can um, you know institute sort of the logistics, the supplies um, move people to the right hotspots within the system so that we can uh, respond to the the patients that we're seeing um, either in emergency departments or hospitals. Um, What I see um, is that we have a different set of issues than we did in March and April. Um, We were talking about personal protective equipment um, and other supplies that were in short supply. Um, Now we have those in place. In fact, we've shored up a number of the supply chains to make that happen really the issue at hand um, is that there are simply a limit in terms of the number of doctors and nurses we have in the entire U.S. Um, And so um, one of the things that I think that we're having to plan for here is ensuring that we've got um, sufficient support for our staff um, and and making sure that they have, uh, again, the tools in place um, so that they can respond in kind when our patients arrive, um, the other thing that we've done is we've actually changed up how we provide healthcare. Um, so, you know, a lot of the stuff that has been traditionally done in person, we've been able to do virtually, whether by video, by telephone, or even by what we call e visits. Um, and that has allowed us to actually scale up to what is a larger magnitude of a response that's needed right now.
0: Yeah, I want to actually touch on both of those points. Uh, you know, we, we have been, I, I actually spoke earlier in the week with a company that uh, helps traveling nurses find hospitals. And uh, the picture I'm getting from them is pretty much all the nurses that are available have found their hospitals. And so uh, it's it's looking to be getting really difficult if, uh, if there is a staffing shortage to, to fill that need at this point. I mean, isn't there just, a, have we reached that hard limit for how many uh, doctors and nurses are
1: available, and uh, are, are we pretty much? Do we pretty much have what we're going to have at this point? It's a great question. So, um, Kaiser Permanente, and I know other systems within California, are doing what you're talking about scouring the landscape, looking for additional nurses. Um, and in our case, um, we're able to also repurpose doctors um, to provide help and, and services, and even to the point of helping out uh, with nursing as well. It's an all hands on deck situation, Um, but there are other sort of options here. Um, We have patient care technicians. We have um, nursing students, medical students, residents um, who can pitch in and help. And so we are making sure that if we need to provide the cross-training that's necessary Um, And we've set up either training modules or actual hands-on modules um, to have people be able to pitch in. Um, And this includes uh, within the hospital system itself or in the the clinics um, that we've got those additional hands uh, to be able to help our patients. How big of a difference could those sorts of measures make? I think it can make all the difference in the world. Um, These are really dedicated healthcare professionals um, and, uh, you know, We've moved, I think, in the last decade when it comes to the care of a patient um, to team-based models. Um, and so what we're doing here right now is expanding the scope of what that team looks like. Um, and it's really um, taking that level of innovation, creativity um, uh, that, that is necessary to respond to you know, the pandemic of a lifetime. All right. Reminding listeners real quick that this is
0: KCBS In-Depth speaking right now to Dr. Stephen Perotti with Kaiser Permanente. So uh, circling back on the question of, you know, what it is a good idea to go into the hospital right now to seek care for. We have been hearing a lot about some hospitals suspending elective surgeries. Some are instituting a blanket ban. Some seem to be a little bit more selective, uh, taking a few here and there, taking those uh, surgeries off the table.
1: What is the picture looking like for Kaiser in the Bay Area right now? This is uh, you know, something that we've actually learned a great deal about. So back in March and April, when we knew less about how the virus was spread and also had challenges with personal protective equipment, uh, doing a, a, a blanket approach to reducing the number of surgical procedures we were uh, providing made sense at the time. Um, what I think we've learned, um, particularly now that we have uh, more PPE available, Um, and have built in the the flexible staffing, the the flexible spaces within the hospital um, to handle COVID-19. We've been able to maintain uh, inpatient elective surgeries on selected bases um, for the hospitals that are having significant surges, where we're needing to use the post-anesthesia care units for actual hospital units those places we are in fact already starting to suspend some inpatient elective procedures, while others that are not experiencing as much of a surge, we've been able to maintain those operations. So it's really a selective approach based on what we're facing and what we're seeing in a given community. Mm. And
0: what would be your message to residents wondering whether or not right now is the time for their election procedure? You know, is it safe to go into the hospital to seek care for whatever ailment they're
1: facing? One of the things that I do want to emphasize is we've uh, taken a great deal of work and, and pains to make sure that if you walk into a Kaiser Permanente facility, whether that is a medical office building in our emergency department or you're in a hospital, um, that that you are safe. um, That the actions have been taken um, to prevent the spread of COVID-19 within our facilities. um, And if you do have COVID-19 that you're going to receive the optimal care. Um, So people should seek the care that they need. Um, We don't want people Um, who have need for care, whether it's cardiac care, um, care for their cancer, to delay those types of procedures if we have the capacity to do so. Um, People should still seek the care that they need.
0: And that's kind of borne out by the figures that we've seen in terms of the transmission rates among medical professionals, not nearly as high as we were seeing in the spring, and I think uh, uh, not even as high as we're seeing in the general populace in some cases.
1: Yes, I, I think that, uh, you know, healthcare workers, healthcare personnel uh, have modeled the the behavior that, that we need. Um, and, and and really what I, one of my pleas, um, if there's no other plea and no other takeaway from our conversation today, is that uh, we really have uh, an ask. The ask for the community, the ask for each of you as parents, um, as grandparents, as uh you know people that uh, are participating in essential workers um, to do those three things wash your hands wear a mask wash your distance um, that's how we're going to stop this coronavirus in its tracks
0: I want to talk about uh, the issue of testing briefly. Uh, private hospital systems in the Bay Area have faced some criticism for uh, slow testing times, long turnaround times, and uh, we are uh, s- seeming to see uh, even longer times currently, seeing some uh, media reports, uh, Sa- San Francisco Chronicle in particular, seeing an up- uptick in the amount of time it takes patients both to get that testing uh, scheduled, COVID testing scheduled, as well as the time it takes to uh, get those results back and and uh, Kaiser Permanente was uh, among those in the reporting that I've seen that are seem to be experiencing some extended wait times for the COVID testing. Obviously, when you get that COVID test, you really want the results back as quickly as possible. What can you tell me about the challenges that the system is facing right now and uh, what's being done to
1: address them? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, testing is a, a critically essential component to the response to this pandemic. And of course, it's critical in terms of just the diagnostic, knowing whether someone has it or not. Um, And then secondly, uh, to prevent further spread, because we can do um, contact tracing around the individual that is uh, positive. um, the, the amount of testing that has uh, been occurring over the last, really, two to three weeks has grown, again, e- exponentially. Um, so where we were doing, um, you know, somewhere on average of, you know, five to 7,000 tests a day, um, we're approaching sixteen to 18,000 tests a day. Um, that has uh, required, you know, literally building a new lab. Um, increasing, uh, you know, our supply chain to make sure we've got the proper equipment, reagents, etc., cetera, um, to provide that uh, level of testing. Um, we've also instituted um, a number of rapid tests uh, that are critically important for individuals that are being hospitalized um, and for our healthcare workers um, so that they can remain on the job. Um, we are working with our uh, state partners um, to uh, hopefully increase additional capacity that we believe is going to be necessary um, within uh, really the context of this larger um, wave that we're seeing at the moment Uh, but also going into 2021 um, knowing that while vaccines coming online and going to be available that we're still going to be dealing with the potential for additional surges. Um, So uh, we are working to continue to increase the capacity because we understand there are going to be more and more cases for who needs to be tested and how frequently. So residents should expect those wait times to go down somewhat? Well, we're going to work our, uh, you know, as hard as possible to make that happen. Um, And, you know, I'm actually in regular contact with our own laboratory. Um, as well as our Southern California laboratory to coordinate the efforts. And so if it requires us transporting samples um, to where there's additional capacity in a given reference laboratory, we're taking those actions now. Um, So the goal is to do exactly what you're saying, reduce those wait times um, and reduce the turnaround time. All right. Well, certainly a lot of difficult weeks
0: ahead, but it sounds like a lot of really intensive work going on as well to prepare. And so we certainly do thank you and your colleagues for all that hard work and uh, just hoping that it's going to pay off in this really difficult time. Uh, We have been speaking to Dr. Stephen Perotti, once again, an infectious disease specialist and an associate executive director with Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Stephen Perotti, thank you so much. Thank you, Keith. Thank you all for listening. Remember, you can find past KCBS In-Depth programs in full on the KCBS website. That's kcbsradio.com, or look for the podcast on your podcast app. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. We'll see you next week.